There was a boy named Tim who took a tour of the Henry Ford factory in Dearborn, Michigan with his parents. He was amazed when he saw an electromagnetic crane move over a large railroad car filled with what seemed to be junk steel. At the flip of a switch, everything in that car leaped up to that magnetic crane. And then he saw something strange. Some pieces of uh, what seemed to be steel fell back into the car. Tim waited until the others had left the tour and then climbed up into the car to look inside to find out why these pieces fell back in. He found they were not steel at all. Lying on the bottom of the car were some old two-by-fours, a broom handle, and some broken pieces of wood. Only objects made of the right component responded to the magnet, while the rest were left behind. There is coming a time soon when the Lord Jesus Christ will call his bride to be with him. Now, I'm not here to make predictions. I'm not the Herald camping type. Uh, But if you can't see that we're living in the last days, then you're hiding under a rock (laughs) because we're there. Like steel that is magnetized and pulled up, only those who are believers in Jesus Christ filled with his Holy Spirit, will be pulled up into our heavenly home where God is to be with him forever. In fact, 2 Timothy 4.8 says that there is a crown for those who long for his appearing. Did you know that? Jesus will reward you for longing for his appearing. Now, please understand, this is one of those sermons where I'm explaining my views on the second coming of Christ. Uh, uh, Fred and Buzzy and Kirk and myself, we all differ in our views of the eschaton, that is the study of last things. Um, So understand that. And so my goal, again, is not to convert you to my position. It's so that you'll do your own study and make up your own mind of the scriptures. Now, I'm a web developer by trade and When I was first learning how to write JavaScript, I would write a piece of code and I would come up against a wall trying to figure out how to get the code to work. And in investigating and going on sites like Stack Overflow and all of that, trying to figure out how the code was working, I wouldn't necessarily solve my problem, but I would learn like 10, 15, 20 new things along the way about object-oriented programming. Well, when you study eschatology, it's a lot like that. You may not come to a conclusion, but boy, you'll sure learn a whole lot about Jesus. And that's why studying the end times is so important. But along the way of sorting out the eschaton, and as you grow in your faith in Jesus Christ, you will discover more of what God has for you in your life. So my subject today, stretch is the rapture of the church. And why I believe the church will be taken to heaven before God pours out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. I'm going to touch on reasons through Scripture why I think this to be so. How it affects the releasing of the Antichrist and more importantly, 
how that affects the way you and I live as we anticipate the imminent return of our Lord. Now, please understand, I'm not here to make predictions about the exact timing of the rapture. Jesus clearly told us in Matthew 24, 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. I'm also not going to try to take world events in the news and try to jam them and manipulate them into an eschatological scheme. An example of this at the time of this sermon is that Israel attacked Iran's city just a couple of days ago, as reported by the Times of Israel. Iran, by many intelligence sources, has enough to enrich uranium to build three nuclear bombs. Not good for a country who calls Israel the great Satan and America the little Satan. But I won't sit here and say that we're in the tribulation period just because Iran, Israel is in a proxy war with Iran. Do you get what I'm saying? There are companies in Europe that plant a microchip in the hand of an employee to give them access to corporate buildings and spaces. Now, am I going to say that they're taking the mark of the beast as described in Revelation 13? No. The Bible's clear that the mark will be forced upon the world community as an act of worship to the Antichrist. This has partial fulfillment with Caesar Nero right around the time of 70 AD, but will be realized when Satan's emissary, known as the Antichrist, will take over the world through flattery, intrigue, and political maneuvering on a global scale. He will solve the uh, biggest problem facing the world today, and that will be the problem of Jerusalem. Excuse me. He will broker a peace deal with Israel for seven years as laid out in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It's called the prophecy of the 70 weeks. Israel will be deceived. They will receive him as their Messiah and will allow them to rebuild their temple where Israel, who has rejected Christ as their Messiah, will reinstitute their sacrificial system. Antichrist, in the three and a half year mark of that period, while the church is in heaven, mind you, which I will lay out, will walk into the Holy of Holies, the place of the Ark of the Covenant. He will take his seat in that place, which uh, in our text here in 2 Thessalonians 2 will describe and he will demand to be worshipped. So please understand, we need to be watchful, but at the same time discern what Scripture says about these things. Let's get into the text. Verse 1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by a spirit or spoken word or letter, seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Paul here is addressing right off the bat that it's about our being gathered to Jesus, which is the rapture of the church. Now, I don't want to assume everyone knows what the rapture is, so I'll explain it uh, here. The rapture, or the harpazo, as it is the, as the Greek word, is the catching away of believers on the earth to the presence of the Lord Jesus in heaven. Harpazo, the Greek word, literally means to snatch or to seize with force. 
The idea is that God will suddenly, in a millisecond, translate us who are believers into a brand new, uncorrupted body. See 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 53. A body that can stand in the presence and the glory of the Lord and then will be transported in an instant to Jesus whereby he'll take us to heaven. Jesus told us that this would happen in John chapter 14 when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me that in my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you will be also. And I will come again and I will receive you unto myself. There are many instances of this snatching away in scripture. Paul, when he was transported to heaven there in 2 Corinthians 12, Philip was snatched away just after uh, baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, the same word for Philip being snatched away is the word harpazo. Same word used. There are the two witnesses in Revelation 11 that after, after uh, their resurrection, they are snatched away, carried to heaven. Our Lord Jesus at his ascension in Acts 1 is a type of the rapture, though he ascended more slowly in view of the disciples. You have Enoch there in Genesis chapter 5. He was raptured and taken before the flood of Noah. Now, Paul tells the Thessalonians not to be upset or shaken in mind. Why? In his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had taught them that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse two. This teaching raised a question in their minds. Considering how badly persecuted they were, they thought that they were already in the great tribulation. They had cause for concern. And after all, the persecutions they were experiencing seemed to be what the prophets had predicted in the world on the day of the Lord. There were other teachers in Thessalonica that taught a distorted view of the second coming of Christ, and they misquoted Paul in his first letter, and Paul was writing this second letter to clear up their misunderstanding, to give them comfort and reassurance. But if this were so, how could Paul's previous instruction that they would be caught up and escape the wrath of God be true? And that's why Paul wrote this second letter. You must also remember that the Thessalonians were new believers. And most scholars seem to indicate that Paul was only with them for about three weeks. And Paul was teaching these infant believers about the second coming of Jesus Christ. To anticipate him and to live in expectancy of his return is something we all should do. Look with me at verse three. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion or the falling away as some of your translations say comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Verse four, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Right off the bat, Paul says, listen, don't listen to what anybody else says. Don't let anybody deceive you. I'm going to explain it to you here and now. Paul says that something must come first before Antichrist is released. 
He calls it the rebellion. Well, it's translated rebellion in the ESV, falling away. Uh, but the KJV and KGV, yeah, again, falling away. And the Geneva Bible, which preceded the King James Version, translates the word as departure. So what does Paul mean by rebellion or falling away? The Greek word is the word apostasia, where we get our word apostasy. It has, it has two meanings. The first means to defect or to revolt. And the second is a departure or a disappearance. It has a spatial aspect. There are those who would argue that the rapture will happen when there's a great apostasy of the church. And we certainly see that happening in our world today as more and more professing Christians are publicly renouncing their faith. This could be true, but this has happened all throughout church history. The other, the other argument is departure or disappearance, which could also be true. And I certainly believe in the context of this passage could lend itself to that very translation. I believe it is the disappearance of the church. And I'll explain why as we get in. The second event that must take place, Paul says that the man of lawlessness is revealed. That is Antichrist. That's one of his titles, the man of lawlessness. That is the rapture will coincide with the releasing of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will be released after the church is taken in my view. This is my view. Paul will discuss why as we travel down the rest of the passage. Now, side note, Antichrist does not mean against Christ. It means in place of Christ. He's a cheap substitute that will act as savior of the world when he is released. In fact, if you read there in Revelation 13, you will see an unholy trinity. You have Satan playing the role of the father. You have the Antichrist playing the role of the son and the savior. And you have the false prophet playing the role of the Holy Spirit, who actually the false prophet is the one who performs the miracles uh, uh, and promotes the Antichrist. Verse four, Paul tells us this Antichrist opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. Again, Antichrist will broker a peace deal with Israel and allow them to rebuild their temple. David and, and Stephen were just in Israel and they were, were you, were you by the Temple Institute? Yeah. I mean, the gold menorah, all the fixtures, all, everything is ready to go. And they are zealous to rebuild their temple. The Jewish people will blindly receive Antichrist and they will blindly reinstitute their sacrificial system because they think that's the only way their sins can be atoned according to the Old Testament. Jesus was once and for all sacrificed for us, and he is the propitiation for our sins. But the Jews as a nation rejected Christ as their Messiah and will be deceived by Antichrist and take him as their Messiah. Jesus foretold this in John 5.43 when he says, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. But yet, if another comes in his own name, him you will receive. So in the middle of this seven-year covenant that Antichrist makes with the nation Israel, according to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, and this passage here, and Matthew 24, 15, 
Antichrist will stop the sacrifices. He will sit down in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And he will declare himself to be God. This is called the abomination of desolations. This is detailed in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And Jesus references again this future event in Matthew 24, 15. He will demand to be worshipped as the way, truth, and life. He will be flat evil. He will demand allegiance from the world community. It's at this point that all hell is unleashed on earth. The great tribulation will begin. And at that point, the Antichrist will persecute the Jewish people. Hitler took one out of three Jews in World War II. According to Zechariah 13.8, the Antichrist will take two out of three. But Jesus will come back and he will rescue them as a nation. When the second coming takes place, Jesus will come back on his white horse, Revelation 19, and his church right behind him, and he rescues Israel, and Israel will finally receive him as their Messiah. This event is the pinnacle event of the end time scenario. <clears throat> Jesus thus far has not allowed a third temple to be rebuilt, but when Jesus takes the church out of the way, the salt and light of the earth, he will release the Antichrist, and give the world what it wants, a leader after their own passions and lusts. Why the Jews? Why the distinction between the church and Israel? What's the difference? Well, salvifically, through faith, uh, uh, I'm sorry, salvifically, both Jews and Gentiles are saved the exact same way. By grace, through faith, through the finished work of Jesus Christ. In fact, Ephesians 2 makes it clear that both uh, that God took both Jew and Gentile and he made one in Christ. That is true. Spiritually, that is true. Those who are in Christ are spiritually part of the commonwealth of Israel as Paul lays this out in Romans chapter 9 through 11. That we Gentiles are grafted in to the tree of the commonwealth of Israel. However, you also can't ignore the covenant promises that God made to the nation in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. God promised the nation Israel through Abraham that his posterity would indeed receive the land that God promised him. See Genesis 15.8 and Genesis 13.4. God promised the nation Israel that they would never cease being a nation. Jeremiah 31.36. God promised the nation Israel that Messiah would literally sit on the throne of David. Literally. See 2 Samuel chapter 7. And there are more promises, but in deference to time, I will not go through them. There are those that would argue that because the nation Israel rejected the gospel, that somehow all of the promises afforded to her now belong to the church. This is called replacement theology, and I do not believe this. I don't hold that view, as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine, saying in context of the nation of Israel, that his gifts and callings are irrevocable. He even argues that because Israel has rejected the gospel, does not make void God's promises nor his 
faithfulness. After all, if he can reject the promises that he made to Israel, he can certainly reject the promises that he's made to the church. But that gives me comfort because I know how carnal I am. And to know that my Savior loves me because of what he did for me on the cross is astounding. Now, why would Paul place this much emphasis on the nation Israel? Because once Jesus saves Israel at the end of the tribulation period, he will set all things right. Israel will be the capital of planet Earth. And that's why Israel is the focal point of Bible prophecy. Paul even says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? You remember my first letter to you? Remember I explained this to you? And Paul stirs them up by way of reminder to comfort and exhort them to keep going in Christ. How about you? Is your faith shaken? Paul, through these words, should encourage you. If you don't think that we're living in the soon return of Christ and that shakes you, or if you think it doesn't, it shakes you, let me encourage you, Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. And you can have hope that he knows how to keep the righteous preserved. In fact, why is Bible prophecy important to study? Well, John tells us in 1 John 3, 2 and 3, he says, Beloved, we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. It has a purifying aspect to our lives when we expect his coming at any moment. At any moment. Now verse 6, Paul now goes into detail about what this all looks like. Verse 6, and you know what? is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. So Paul is indicating that something is restraining the devil from releasing the Antichrist on the world. This is a restraining force that will continue restraining him until God sees fit that it is time. And then he will be revealed. He will go on to describe the restraining force. Look at with me. Look carefully at verse 7 and 8. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is why I have trouble believing that all of this happened in 70 AD because the visible return of Christ, we don't have a record of that and, and all of that. But again, I'm not here to split hairs on theology. You need to do your own study. And you need to listen to the opinions of, of Fred and Kirk because we've, we've argued about it. it, sometimes even punched each other. <laughs> but you need to hear their perspectives on these things. You need to hear the amillennial position. You need to hear the premillennial position. 
This is important. No, it's not. It's a secondary issue, but it's still important. Now, notice what Paul says there in verse seven. The mystery of lawlessness is at work. The mystery of lawlessness is the idea that the unseen forces of evil are corrupting that which is good and godly for the purpose of taking over planet Earth completely. Mystery in the Greek is the Greek word mysterion, which holds the idea that it was something that was hidden but is now revealed. Paul says in another passage, the mystery of godliness, the mystery of Christ. Lawlessness is the disregard and reverence for any law and will continue to advance until the world is under complete control of the Antichrist. And we see it happening all around us. And then Paul says something really interesting there in verse 7. He says, only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. So what is this restraining force that Paul mentions? What restrains the devil from releasing his emissary on the world? Well, look carefully at what Paul's language is here. In verse 6, Paul says the restrainer is a what? But here in verse 7, the restrainer is a he. It's a pronoun. This is a person restraining the devil and holding him back from full authority and having full capability on the world. This he has the devil and the Antichrist on a leash. So who is this person? Who is the he that Paul speaks of? There are only three possible beings that reveal the identity of who this restrainer is. Number one, mankind is restraining the devil. Now we know that that's not possible. That's a pretty hard sell. Because the evil one is more powerful than we are. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Number two, the devil's restraining the devil. That's a hard sell. But there's only one possibility, and that is God, specifically the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The he here is the Holy Spirit restraining the evil one. The devil cannot do whatever he wants without the sovereign permission of our Lord. So once the Holy Spirit removes his restraint the evil one will be let out of his cage like a wild animal to do whatever he wants. Now that doesn't mean the Holy Spirit will be gone. He is, after all, God and is omnipresent. It just means he won't be restraining evil anymore. Now here is where it gets interesting. We saw at the beginning of this chapter that the context is our being gathered together to him. That's the rapture of the church. That's the context. Let me ask you a question. By what vehicle is the Holy Spirit using today to restrain the forces of Satan? Who has God, the Holy Spirit, chosen to take up residence and reveal Jesus Christ to the world? It is the church. You who are in Christ is whom the Holy Spirit is working through to restrain evil and to be salt and light in the world. And Jesus points this out in John 16, 7 through 11. 
The church is the primary way by which Jesus reveals himself to the world. It is by the power of the spirit by which he does it. Jesus says that we are salt and light. Salt not only gives things flavor, but it is also a preservative. I I love homemade almond milk. One cup of almonds, four cups of water, two figs, and grind it up and strain it through a milk bag. You're welcome. But one of the things that I do is I I, uh, put put a couple of uh, twists of pink Himalayan salt in it actually makes it last for another three or four days in the, in, the, in the fridge. Because that's what salt does, is it preserves something from rotting. Light, obviously, makes gives light to people so they can see who the truth of God is. When God takes the church home, salt and light will be removed, and the world will be left to fend for themselves. Without the salt of the church, the world will rot. Without light, it will be dark. God will give the world what it wants, a world without him. Judgment is not just raining down fire and brimstone, but when the Lord gives man over to a debased mind, as it says in Romans 1, that's a bad place to be. Brothers and sisters, look around. We are there. Now, Brett, are you solely basing the rapture of the church before God pours out his wrath on this passage alone? You know full well you can't build a doctrine off of just one passage of scripture. I am so glad you brought that up. There are many reasons why I believe the church is taken before the great tribulation. I'll name a few. Number one, you will find nowhere in scripture where God judges the righteous with the wicked. You have Enoch. He walked with God and he was taken in Genesis 5 before the flood. Was Enoch pre-flood, mid-flood, or post-flood? You have Noah in Genesis 6 as we read that the world was a very dark place. All the men of the face of the earth uh, only thought about doing evil things continually, it says. There were also some weird, hybrid, human, demonic things going on. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God gave him plans to build an ark. It took Noah about 120 years to build that ark. And 2 Peter 2.5 tells us that Noah preached the gospel the whole time he was building the ark. He's a picture of the church. And the day that the day came and Noah entered the ark and God began to open the fountains of the deep and the waters. But yet God preserved his righteous ones through his wrath. Let's talk about Lot. Now Lot was an idiot. Carl, uh, Carl, Ashley, Tar, and I, we had our microgroup the other night and read this story. And Ashley was about ready to throw her Bible at me. She was so mad at Lot. I'm kidding. <laughs> Lot was a government official in Sodom. He sat at the gate. God dis- the, the, the city was so wicked, God dispatched two angels to destroy it. The, many, the men of the city wanted to have... There's children's ears in here, carnal relations with those angels. It was so perverted that when the men of the city tried to push down the door to get to the angels, the angels blinded them, but they still groped for the door. 
So the next morning, the angels hurry Lot out and get this. They said to him in Genesis 19, 22, hurry, escape, because we cannot do anything until you arrive at your next destination. The angel said, we will not judge this city until you're gone. And what does Peter say about Lot in his epistle? He said, Lot is righteous, even though he's an idiot. He is righteous by the grace of God. And God spared Lot out of judgment and wrath. What about Rahab? She was a prostitute in Jericho. She hid these uh, Jewish spies when they came to spy out the land. And she diverted the, the king of the city and his men another way. And yet she was spared before the wrath was poured out on Jericho. She was taken out. And we find Rahab being in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation. God has not destined the church for wrath. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying we're immune to persecution. That would be a disservice to our brothers and sisters in China and the Middle East. I am not saying that at all. In fact, Jesus promised us in this world, we will have tribulation. We will have trials and suffering. In fact, we should expect it, especially with the way our American culture is going. But we are not subject to the wrath of God. In Revelation, the Greek word for church there is the word ekklesia. Revelation describes God's judgment from chapter 6 through 19. But ekklesia is not found. Oh yes, there are people that are saved. There are saints. But it's not the church. But my final evidence is the cross. God in his God poured his wrath that I deserved out on his son. The wrath. And he took it for you and for me. Why would he pour his wrath out on us a second time? That would make what he did on Calvary ineffective. Well, Brett, you're just an escapist. You just want to get out of here before it all goes down. You're doggone right I do. Don't you? Jesus said, when you see these things happen in Luke 21, look up, lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. And then the lawless one will be revealed. The G Jesus will destroy Antichrist when he returns a second time. Jesus will meet Antichrist in the valley of Megiddo. I believe it's Revelation 16. And Jesus will put him down once and for all. He'll never be allowed to deceive the nations ever again. Antichrist and his false prophet will be thrown into the lake of fire and sealed for eternity. Notice the power of the Antichrist will be destroyed just by Jesus' appearance. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders, 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Verse 9 and 10 describe the career of this lawless leader. You can read more about his career also in Daniel chapter 11 towards the end of that chapter. He will counterfeit Jesus. He will perform miracles. He will have a social media campaign that you can't believe. People will be in awe of this guy because it will be to the point where God will just let go and say, it's Burger King, have it your way. Do they still say that? I don't know. You know what's scary? Judgment is not when God rains down fire and releases demons on the earth. Judgment is when God leaves you to yourself. If you are here today, or if you're watching online, if you are ignoring the promptings of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will lay it down. And you may say, well, when the rapture happens, then I'll live for him. To which I would say, if you can't live for Christ now, what makes you think you will live for him then? Yes, the greatest revival in human history will take place during the Great Tribulation. Yes, millions of souls will be saved as the 144,000 are dispatched to preach the gospel. But it will be difficult. It will be difficult. And what does it mean that God sends the people of the earth a strong delusion? Well, when you harden your heart to the promptings of the Holy Spirit, your heart becomes harder and harder and harder and more obstinate and less sensitive to the Holy Spirit wooing you to Christ. There will come a day when the Lord simply allows you to have your own way. You see, we all know the truth instinctively. Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is set in the heart of a man. Romans 1.18 says that people suppress the truth and deliberately believe the lie. There was a movie called The Matrix. There was a character named Cypher. If you haven't seen it, you should have. It's really old, so I'm going to spoil it for you. Cypher was sort of like the Judas in the story. The Matrix was like this computer-generated uh, construct to keep humans uh, plugged into it as, as this dream world. Cypher was broken out of the Matrix by a guy by the name of Morpheus. But he loved the lie and wanted to go back in and be a part of the Matrix and just forget about reality. Well, that's what it's like for many people in our world today. Even people who profess the name of Christ. But if you turn and repent, his blood will cleanse you and you will have new life. You will experience him in a fresh way. He will make you new if you repent and turn to him. In closing, I'd like to explain how a Jewish wedding from antiquity worked. Typically, the father of the groom would select a bride for his son. 
Now, there's some argument as to how this happened, whether the son and the father chose together. And nevertheless, the son would honor the father and the arrangements would be made and the son would leave his father's house. Are you with me? Are you seeing the picture? Jesus left the presence of his father and incarnated with us. His name is Emmanuel, God with us. The son would approach the bride's family and ask permission for her hand in marriage. You see this played out in Genesis uh, 26, I believe, with the story of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. If the potential wife agreed to be married, they would sign a contract in Hebrew called the ketubah. The ketubah was a, a le- were legal terms or a legal document on the conditions of the marriage. Guess how they signified the, merit, the, the betrothal? They would take bread and wine. This is my body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, this is, this is my blood. They signified it by bread and wine. Jesus signified the covenant that he made with us. The ketubah was binding. In fact, when you were engaged in that culture, you had to get a divorce from the engagement. That's why the Bible says that Joseph sought to put Mary away quietly when she conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Then, then the son would pay a dowry. He, it was basically insurance for, his, for the bride, the prospective bride. It was, it was his way of guaranteeing that he was going to do what he said he was going to do. What did Jesus leave us with? Money? He left us with the Holy Spirit, the dowry, the bride. And then the, 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 the son would, after the agreement, they would, he would go back to his father's house and he would build an addition on to his father's house for he and his future bride. I will say it again. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And when that was read, when the, when the extension of the house was ready and the father said it was time, he would send his son back with a party, a wedding party. And usually they would come into the bride's town in the middle of the night and they would blow a trumpet. Usually a hundred blasts from a trumpet. And the last trumpet was called the Takia Godalia, I think is the Hebrew word. It was a long trumpet blast. And the groom would climb in through the window and take his bride out and take her back to his father's house. And after a short ceremony, the bride and the groom would be hidden in the wedding chamber for seven days where they would consummate the marriage and they would drink that final cup of wine, that second last cup. Jesus said, 
I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I do it with you in heaven. And after seven days, he presents his bride to the world. He presents his bride to the world. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 26. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation, the judgment is passed. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. God says, come into your chambers while the sun goes and judges a Christ-rejecting sinful world. The bride is revealed after seven days and we come back with Christ to rule and reign forever. That all made possible because of his finished work on the cross and he took us as his bride. In the Old Testament, uh, Israel was called the wife of Jehovah. But in the New Testament, we are called the bride of Christ. Are you ready to meet him? I know I am. I'm ready to get out of here, man. (laughs) I'm ready to be in his presence. Are you? Are you ready? Are, are Are you walking the way you know you're supposed to be walking? Have you repented of any sin, bitterness, anger? Is there anything that is hindering your your walk with the Lord Jesus? Just bring it to him. And and Kim is going to introduce us again to the table where we we can set things right by just submitting back into his his presence. Are you ready to meet him? He's coming soon. Maranatha, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your coming. We love you. Help us to be a people that stands ready to be received. The wheat and the tares are being gathered together. But it seems like the crop is maturing and it's almost time for harvest. It seems that way. Lord, make us a people that's ready and remove those things that hinder us from you. Thank you, Jesus, that you are sovereign, that you are holy, and that you love us, and that all things are in your control. Thank you that you, that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.